That one is orange, though. Is that right? That's right. Okay. We already started? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. So today is uh, day two, which is also known as the first day blues. And the reason is because at some point or another during your practice, you will have met with a lot of what we would call hindrances. So why do we call them hindrances? They can be known as distractions or hindrances, but they come from the word nivarana in Pali. Nivarana essentially means obstacle or obstruction. What is it that is being obstructed? What is the obstacle here? What is going on when you have a distraction? A distraction, remember I told you yesterday, a distraction is whenever your mind's attention is fully away from the object of meditation. So if you have even a small fragment of loving kindness in your awareness and there are thoughts in the background, that's okay. You don't have to do anything. But if your attention goes completely away from the object, and now you're thinking about this or that or the other, then you are said to be distracted. So when we say you are distracted, it means you, your attention is no longer on its object. And so when we use the word obstruction, what we're saying is your attention, the, the ray or light of attention, that's beaming out towards the object is obstructed by something. There's an obstacle on your path. So how do you deal with an obstacle? How do you deal with an obstruction? You have to remove it. But the key is, how do you remove it? Let's say you're driving a car down the road and you see a traffic cone. Do you drive forward and past it? Or do you drive around it? How do you deal with it? In the same way, when we talk about obstacles or hindrances, we don't push against them. We don't try to fight them. The hindrance that is present in the mind is the reality of the situation. It is the dhamma of the moment. In other words, it is the phenomena that you have to deal with. It is the truth of the moment. And for us to try to fight with it will only cause us more suffering. So we might recognize that there is the hindrance. We might recognize that there is the obstacle. But if we just recognize and try to push it away, that comes from an attitude of aversion. I don't like it here. I don't like this hindrance being present. Or if we indulge in the hindrance because it is a pleasant experience somehow. Maybe we think about something that is pleasing to the mind and we start to get caught up in that nostalgic thoughts or thoughts of the past or what it could be in the future, daydreaming and so on. And so the mind gets caught up in it. And as soon as we recognize it, that flow of getting caught up in it stops. But then how do you deal with it moving forward? The key is to let go and to relax. There are the four right efforts that I talked about yesterday. What are those four right efforts? The first right effort is to prevent any unarisen, unwholesome state from arising. The second right effort is to let go or to abandon any already arisen, unwholesome state of mind. 
The third right effort is to generate a wholesome state of mind. And the fourth right effort is to maintain the awareness or maintain that wholesome state of mind. So every time you recognize that your mind is distracted, what are you doing? You are stopping the flow of further hindrances from arising in that moment. All of that momentum of, of unarisen or potential hindrances that could arise, all of that momentum just stops right there and then, as soon as you notice you're distracted. When you relax, you are letting go of your attention to that hindrance because you're bringing it back to the body. You're bringing it back to the present moment. You're bringing it back to the mind. And so you let go of that hindrance through your attention. Then when you come back to your smile, you're generating a wholesome state of mind. What is a wholesome state of mind? A wholesome state of mind is any kind of mind that feels spacious, that doesn't cause any kind of tension or tightness in the body, that creates peace and balance in the mind. So the smile, there is a lot of emphasis in this kind of practice about smiling. And the reason is because smiling lightens the mind. Smiling brings immediate clarity to the mind. It brings immediate joy to the mind. We're not talking about exuberant joy. We're not talking about a joy that is excited. We're talking about an uplifted feeling of mind where the mind feels at ease and it feels clear and it feels collected. So when you smile, once you've, you smile, you've generated a wholesome state as a result of that smile. And more often than not, the smile will happen almost automatically. And the reason is because every time you relax and let go of a hindrance in the mind, for those few moments, your mind experiences Nibbana. It is a mundane kind of Nibbana. And that Nibbana might last for a few seconds, a few moments. And it feels like the mind is unburdened. The mind is free in those few moments. It's like a clear blue cloudless sky, open and spacious. And because of that, because the mind is so relaxed, it feels naturally collected. It feels naturally joyful, buoyant, uplifted. And from that, you return back to your object of meditation, whether that's loving kindness to yourself, loving kindness to another, or radiating loving kindness in any of the directions or in all directions or whatever it might be. So when you return, you maintain that wholesome state of mind, your collectedness in that feeling of the object of meditation is what maintains or continues that wholesome state of mind. So every time you do this process, you are applying right effort. There's not a lot of effort to be made. There's not a lot of pushing to be made. Because when you push your mind, when you crush mind with mind, as it is said in the suttas, it only creates more tightness. It only creates more tension. It only creates the further arising of hindrances. So what are the five hindrances? There are generally listed five hindrances, but there can be subsets of that as well. But the five main hindrances are sensual craving, 
aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt. So what is sensual craving? First of all, craving, which comes from the word tanha, which means to thirst, to, to want something very deeply and very badly. To the extent that if it was not given to you, or if it was not provided, or it was provided and taken away, your mind would experience suffering. That is how you know there is craving there. But in here, when we talk about sensual craving, we're talking about a mind that gets caught up and enamored and distracted by this or that. It's a mind that says, I like this and I want more of it. So what is an example of sensual craving, practically speaking, in the meditation? You may be meditating very deeply, very peacefully, and your mind might be experiencing great amounts of clarity, and you might have loving kindness in your mind, in your heart, and you're staying with that feeling of loving kindness. And then all of a sudden, you hear birds chirping in the sky, right, on the trees. And your attention goes there for a moment, and perhaps then you come back. But then your mind ponders upon what kind of bird was that, right? And then from there, there's mental proliferation. You visualize the bird, the color of its wings, the kind of beak it possesses. You remember a time when you saw this bird while you were walking in the park and how it made you feel. And then as you go up and ponder upon that feeling, you think about how you felt when you were with this person and so on and so forth. So there's all this mental proliferation that arises just from that one moment of sensual experience. So when we talk about sensual experience, what we're saying is anything related to the physical senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the body. The mind is outside of the scope of physical senses. So anything that triggers that mental proliferation from any of the sense bases, the physical sense bases, and then where the mind gets caught up in that is sensual craving. So sensual craving is something that just slowly seeps in like any of the other hindrances. And so the key is to allow your mind to see that and get caught up and see that it's getting caught up in that and then drop it right there by just letting go and relaxing, coming back to the smile and then coming back to your object of meditation. When we talk about aversion, aversion is the opposite of craving in the sense that it is not the absence of craving, it is the flip side of that. It is the mind that says, I don't want this, I don't like this. So aversion has different kinds of templates and different kinds of flavors. Aversion can be irritation, it can be frustration, it can be anger, it can be hatred, it can be all kinds of emotions that say, I don't like this, and I don't want this. So, the very quick and easy way to deal with aversion, or ill will, as it's also known, is to generate loving kindness. But how does aversion arise, practically speaking, in the meditation? Let's say that you are meditating, again, your mind is very clear, very collected, it's on the object of meditation, and you feel very good with it. Everything's going great. And then somebody opens the door and perhaps closes it a little too loudly. And then your mind goes to that and gets irritated and flustered by that and you get upset by that and you have all kinds of thoughts related to it and you say can't they be more mindful can't they be more can't they be more conscientious right 
So when your mind is like that, you have aversion. Aversion pulls you away from the object through saying, I don't like this. And your mind tightens around that feeling of, I don't like this. And it could then result in further mental proliferation where the mind says, I don't like it because of so-and-so. And therefore, you know, they shouldn't be doing this. Don't they know that we're on retreat? And all kinds of thoughts that arise. But if you catch your mind getting caught up in that, that is the recognized step. And immediately thereafter, you let go. Okay, silly mind, it got caught up again. It's okay. Let go of it. And once you let go of it, you feel that relief, that feeling of relaxation. And the joy immediately arises through the smile. And then you return back to your object. And then we have what's known as restlessness. Restlessness and remorse, actually. That's what it's called. So restlessness can arise in different ways. Restlessness can be anxiety, worrying about the future, thinking about this or that, getting caught up in different kinds of thoughts, or remorse, thinking about the past, thinking about how things could have been, thinking about, oh, if only I did this, things would have been different. If only I had said that. If only they did this. These kinds of thoughts. Are remorse and so your mind gets caught up in these kinds of thoughts and then you have further mental proliferation so restlessness can arise for a variety of different reasons but primarily restlessness arises because the mind becomes too tight it tries too hard it pushes a little too much and it tries, it tries to grip onto the object of meditation. As soon as you try to grip onto something, what happens? It seeps right through your fingers, just like sand. But if you notice that and you loosen your grip and you let go, right? So the antidote for restlessness is more tranquility, bringing in more peacefulness, more equanimity, more balance in the mind taking a step back in your mind, instead of pushing further, instead of causing the mind to try to deal with the restlessness by pushing it away, your mind just relaxes and lets go. Find some space, find some distance in the mind. Right? So when that restlessness arises, just notice, okay, my mind, again, my mind is getting caught up in it. Now, the key is not to take any of these hindrances personally. Easier said than done, right? Sometimes you say, oh, why did I get that aversion again? Or why am I getting caught up again? Why am I getting uh, restless again? Why am I having all of these thoughts again? It's okay. That is the nature of the mind. The mind is capricious. It is fickle. It moves from place to place to place. To try to control the mind and to try to establish the mind by forcing it into something is a fool's errand. You're not going to achieve anything by doing that. Perhaps for a few moments, maybe for a few minutes, Maybe even for a few hours, your mind remains absolutely still because you forced it to be in that. But that is just a form of suppression. What happens when you suppress the mind? What happens when you push down a ball into the water? As soon as you let go of it, it goes right back up with full force. The same way when you try to push these things down, when you try to push the hindrances down for those moments for those minutes for those hours your mind feels very calm and collected and 
Perhaps you feel some states of being uplifted, some states of being collected while you're going on about your day. But then a trigger happens. Something catches your attention and you get upset by it. You get caught up in it. You have craving towards it. And then a whole storm of hindrances arises. So you're not dealing with the hindrances as and when they arise in the way that is intended using this path. You're suppressing it. You're pushing it down. The key to deal with the hindrance is to acknowledge it, to be okay with it. Treat the hindrances like guests. Treat the hindrances like teachers. They are shedding light on where your attachments lie or where your sources, your trigger points lie so that you can deal with them and heal from them by letting go and replacing them reconditioning them with states that are wholesome and healthy and uplifting for you. So this restlessness can be dealt by just taking a step back. Just by seeing it for what it is and saying, okay, I'm going to create some space in my mind. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to come back to my smile and I'm going to come back to my object. That's it. And in the big one, sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is something you will experience probably the first couple of days of the retreat, whether you want it or not. And the reason is because your mind is adjusting to a new place adjusting to a new environment, adjusting to a new energy, right? Your mind is adjusting to a new schedule, perhaps. So that's okay. So what is sloth and torpor? Sloth and torpor is a dullness of mind. It is a mind where the attention is not as strong as it ought to be for a mind that should be collected. You may be thinking that you are meditating and you're staying with the feeling of loving kindness and your mind starts to stay there, stay there, stay there. And then suddenly you find yourself in this position. And then what do you do? You find yourself in this position, you immediately get up and you say, I'm going to meditate again. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. And again, you find yourself in that same space. So the way to deal with that sloth and torpor is sometimes it's because there's not enough attention being given to your object of meditation. In other words, there are little holes in your attention. You might be thinking you're meditating and then your mind just dulls out and thinks about something else and there's other things going on. And before you know it, you're in that phase of sloth and torpor. If that's the case, then you can look at the focus of your mind or the attention of your mind like an aperture of a camera. Depends on how much focus you put on it, right? If you focus too much, you don't see the full picture. You're too one-pointed. And as a result, there can be restlessness that arises. But not enough focus, and the image is blurry. You can't make out all of the details. So the right amount of energy, what does the right amount of energy feel like? Well, there is clarity in the mind. The mind has sharpness. The mind is resting on the object of meditation, whatever the object is, and everything feels like it's flowing. There's no tightness. There's no adjustment to be made. Everything is just going on autopilot. Right? So this is... Uh, very closely linked with ekagata, which is not one-pointedness, but rather a mind that is unified with its object, collected. It just remains in its lane, doesn't swerve from here to there. So if that's the case, you can try to bring a little bit more energy if there's sloth and torpor, which means 
just looking more closely, a little bit closer into what's going on. If that doesn't help, then you can do other things. The Buddha talks about the perception of light. So there's the internal light of your attention or your awareness, which I've talked about in terms of shifting that focus. But then there's also the external light. Make sure that you are meditating in daylight or where there is a lot of light. That would also help. If that doesn't work, when you do your walking meditation for about 10 to 15 minutes, do backwards walking. Walk backwards. Because it's so much easier, right? To just walk in the forward direction without even thinking about it. Because we're so used to it. But for us to walk backwards, we need to pay more attention and where the steps are, where we're heading and so on. Which means it starts to strengthen our attention, starts to hone in and focus on our attention. So for 10 to 15 minutes, you can do some backward walking and come back to your sitting and then continue and see how that feels. The Buddha has also said that what you can do is splash water on your face, splash cold water on your face. And if none of that works, go to sleep. Take a nap. So when I say take a nap, I mean take a 20-minute nap at the most. There was an individual at a retreat at Damasuka uh, who heeded my words and he said, you know, I'm doing well and everything, but I just don't find time to meditate. And I said, why? He said, well, I've been spending time napping. I said, how long have you been napping? Oh, three and a half hours, three, three and a half hours. That's not the kind of nap I'm talking about. Do small increments, 15 to 20 minute naps, right? That, that is known as non-deep sleep rest, right? This starts to bring in a little bit more energy to the mind when you do that. There's enough, there's enough of relaxation and rest in the mind, but there's also enough energy that's cultivated when you do that. And then, worse comes to worse, the sloth and torpor is present, and all you can do is just go through it. It's like driving through a fog. There's nothing you can do about it, but just driving through it until the fog is no longer there, until the fog clears. Which means if in that one hour sit, 50 minutes of that is just sloth and torpor, make an effort to just stay with it and you go past it and those 10 minutes can be very clear and very collected. And eventually that changes, where instead of 50 minutes of that, it's 40 minutes of that, or 30 minutes of that, or 20 minutes of that. So don't beat yourself up for any of the hindrances that arise. You didn't cause them to be there. You didn't say, now I want to feel sloth and torpor. You didn't say, now I want to feel restlessness. You didn't say, now I want to feel aversion. It's just arising due to whatever causes and conditions are present. These hindrances arise due to a lack of attention. Your attention is drifting in some other direction, and it's okay. That is the nature of the mind. Once you come to terms with that, and you laugh at the mind, you make light of this whole process, you keep things light, you keep things not serious. Don't make things so serious. Then you will have more progress. Because when things are light, when the mind is clear and uplifted, it naturally becomes more collected. It naturally becomes more open in its awareness. And therefore, it's able to notice when a hindrance arises and able to let go of it easier. And more importantly, it's able to be more focused, more collected. So the more you're able to be okay with yourself, the more you're able to be okay with that mind, the more you're able to be okay with, okay, this is the pr present moment. 
I'm just dealing with it. I'm accepting it as it is. The easier things become. And this is the nature of life itself. It's not just about the meditation. It's about how do you deal with difficult situations in life as well. Do you try to fight against it? Do you try to, you know, change it? Do you try to make things differently? Do you try to chase after things? Or do you accept things as they are and allow things to unfold? Right? That doesn't mean you just sit in your chair and don't do anything. It means that whatever it is you're doing is not so invested in a certain kind of outcome. If you're free of the desire for a certain kind of outcome, then your mind finds the quickest route to that outcome without you even having to do anything. If you just relax and be in it. That's all you have to do. Sure, it might take time, but that's what you're here for, is to learn patience. Patience leads to Nibbana. Be okay with everything that goes on in every moment. Yesterday I talked about surrendering to the moment. Taking refuge in the moment. And that just means being here present. Aware of what your mind is doing at all times. Where is the mind going? What is it thinking about? Is it daydreaming? Is it in sloth and torpor? Okay, acknowledge that it's there then use the present moment as an anchor to just have the presence of mind to come back to your object. Relax back into the moment and then come back to your object. Finally, we have what's known as doubt. So doubt here can mean a multitude of things. Doubt can mean doubt in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, right? Doubt in the teachings, doubt in this or that. But doubt in this case, for practical purposes, also means confusion, not understanding, being unsure of what state of mind the mind is in, right? Not recognizing whether it's a wholesome state or an unwholesome state of mind. That's really what doubt is here. Yes, there's also self-doubt in terms of, am I doing the practice correctly? You know, am I in this retreat? Do I, do I want to be in this retreat? What am I doing here? This meditation is not going so well. Maybe I shouldn't be meditating. Maybe, you know, I didn't hear him correctly when he said this. Am I actually feeling loving kindness? Am I actually collected? All of these things are all emanations of that same doubt not aware of what states are present. So how do you deal with doubt? First, let go of those thoughts. Notice, okay, my mind is confused about whether I'm in this state or not. Take a step back and consider where you were in the meditation just moments ago. Was there tightness or tension? Or was there clarity? Was there aversion? Or was there loving-kindness? What was present in the mind just a few moments ago? Okay, there was some tightness. All right, I'm choosing to let go of that, coming back. Or no, there was loving-kindness there. It's all good. It's fine. So you recognize the doubt. You let it go. Right? You relax. You come back with your smile to the feeling of loving-kindness or whatever the object is. So these are the five hindrances. Sensual craving, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt. The, the key to this practice is not to take it seriously and not to take it personally. The key to success in this practice is to really have fun with it, to make it a game, right? Okay, every time I get caught up in something, I'm going to laugh at myself. I'm going to laugh at my mind, and I'm going to just come back. Every time I stay with the feeling, that's great. That's another brownie point. Fine. 
Make it a game. That's all. And remember, what you've come to this retreat for is to let go some of the suffering that you've been experiencing. Is to let go of some of the craving you might be experiencing. Is to let go of some of the identification your mind goes through. Is to experience greater degrees of clarity. Greater degrees of joy and happiness and contentment. The only way to do that is to let go. Let go of the outcome. Let go of any attachment to the outcome. And just be. Allow the mind to rest in whatever is present. Let your mind be present in every moment. Let your mind observe itself. Okay, this is mind watching mind. I, it's mind watching itself meditate. Right? Creating that space, creating that distance. I am not meditating. The mind is meditating. There is an observing of how mind is meditating. That way, there is less about me, mine, or myself and the outcome. And more of, okay, I'm just observing it like a scientific experiment in a lab. This is what's going on. If I add a little bit more energy, this is what happens. If I have more tranquility, this is what happens. I'm just letting things be as they are. That is the attitude and that is the skill to cultivate for this practice. Mind-watching mind. This is known as metacognition. Not cognition of metta, the loving-kindness, but cognition of cognition itself. Awareness of awareness itself. I also told you yesterday that don't worry about what happens in the interviews. Don't worry about trying to figure out what's going on in every step of the meditation. Trying to make a perfect report. I'm not going to be with the clipboard scoring you on what's going on. I'm here to just listen to what's going on in your experience. So be open about it. Don't try to figure out, okay, what should I be telling Delson in the interview? Right? If it helps, after you sit, write down a few notes, some a few basic you know, things that uh, stand out. Right? And then you can talk about your meditation. So the interview process, I will ask only three questions and then we will take it from there. The first question is, what is your object of meditation? Is it loving kindness to yourself and spiritual friend? Is it radiating in the six directions? If it's radiating in the six directions, what are you radiating? Is it the quiet mind or is it something else? What is your object of meditation? That's the first question. The second question is, what was your longest sit? How long did you sit for? Was it half an hour? Was it 45 minutes? Was it an hour? Was it 90 minutes? Whatever long, you don't have to worry about, you know, how long exactly, just a ballpark figure. And the third question, did anything interesting happen? Did anything strike you as interesting? Did you feel more joy? Did you feel more clarity? Did you feel more spaciousness? Did you feel like you were losing awareness of the body? Did you, whatever it is, something that was different about this meditation. And then we'll take it from there. Right? These are the three questions I want to know from you at each interview. It's not a therapy session, right? It's to understand your own meditation and your own mind in relation to the meditation and life in general. That itself will help you inform you of things that you're dealing with in your life, how to deal with them. Because as we progress in this retreat, we will also talk about intuition. Intuition is the ability of the mind to come into synchronicity with whatever is going on, right? And then the answers arise on their own without having to reflect or think about them. But we'll talk about that more in depth later. For now, this is all I want you to understand. Take it easy. Don't try to force things and enjoy the process.
Any questions? Thanks for your talk. I want to know deeper about uh, slow uh, no, no, uh, uh, restlessness and uh, I forgot the word. Remorse. Remorse. Ah. Uh, that was the first time to hear for me. And uh, today, actually, I felt, uh, yeah, uh, I, I have remorse, uh, remembering in the past a lot today and uh, when I I was my mind was occupied by a lot of past things mm -hmm. I suddenly got slow and topa and uh, uh, sorry I, I mix up a lot of things um, maybe I was told in, in this twin group uh, when I got slow and topa uh, uh, relaxing is good to re reduce the sleepiness yeah, because I yeah, yeah I, and it actually works for me yeah. but today's your talk slow sound topa uh, too much relax or unfocus it makes slow sound topa and that confuses me <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, the way to look at it is when you relax, you're actually bringing more attention. So the relax is not about relaxing the, the, uh, the focus. Or, or I should say, it's not about uh, relaxing to such an extent that you feel more sloth and torpor. Relaxing is to rela bring more attention to the moment. Because as soon as you relax, there is more attention being given. <laughs> Relaxing is make more attention. Yeah. But it's different from it's different from kind of attachment or yeah. Yes. I see. So relaxing really is not about uh, like loosening things up, although it can be when there's craving or when there's aversion and restlessness and so on. But relaxing itself is about balancing the energy, balancing oh. the, the attention or the energy of the attention. So relaxing is really coming back with the presence of mind, coming back with your awareness to the moment. As soon as you do that, it clarifies the mind. And that clarification of the mind deals with the sloth and torpor or the restlessness, one way or the other. Can I understand like relax means uh, back to normal? Uh, probably I got a little bit more understanding. Thank you. <laughs> I will try it tomorrow. Yes. I had a quick question. Um, when you're radiating in the direction are you just radiating like f from as if you're projecting a beam from your entire body or is it coming from your head? Yes, this is a very good question. So neither. I, I, I mean, the thing is the instructions were given in such a way that I'm going to change the instructions. I'm going to update the instructions at some point. But the instructions previously were, you know, now you are in the head and now you're going to radiate from the head. So you're going to think about yourself as a light or, um, um, you know, what's that? Candle. Like a candle or something like that, right? And so, or a lighthouse, and you're just going in this direction, your attention is going in this direction and coming out from your head. It's coming out from your head. What I found to be easier uh, for people is... You imagine the feeling of loving kindness like a light, yes, or like the the surrounding light around the flame, but it's like an aura around you. It has nothing to do with the body, nothing to do with the heart, nothing to do with the head. It's just an aura, maybe about a quarter or half or a meter 
away from your body. It's just surrounding you. And then all you're doing is imagining that in a certain direction, that energy is just being emanated out. You're not pushing it out. You just, it's like, you know, with your attention, you know, your attention being the wind and the energy being the sail, it's just responding to it. That way you don't create unnecessary tension in the head or in the body or try to feel anything in the body. It's just totally a mental experience. Okay. <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense, especially the, the wind yeah. pushing it. So it's a very gentle. Yeah. You're not like trying to make like a fire hydrant or a no. fire hose. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you're right. That's oh. Is that explanation same with uh, spiritual friend? Uh, it I be, you can try it and see if it helps you. Because oh, yes, you do talk about the warmth in the heart, but maybe it feels like the energy is more here rather than over here. You can try and see for yourself. Thank you. I had a quick question. Um, trying to figure out how to phrase it but uh maybe i'll share an example from the last retreat so i remember walking on one of the trails and i uh i was like in a really peaceful state of equanimity and i uh i saw a snake and i didn't react to it at all i was just like oh there's a snake uh and then it just sort of slithered slithered away um so it sort of made me think like well, f fear is quite important in those situations. And so, yeah, I don't know exactly what the question is, but I, I guess, like, what is the balance of, like, yeah, the, the utility of being in certain states and when is it not useful, yeah. if that makes sense. So I, I had a similar experience, I can tell you, from when I was in Namasuka. You know, during the summertime, there's all kinds of snakes. You have... Uh, uh, venomous snakes and you have non-venomous snakes. You have uh, copperheads, you have rattlesnakes, you have all kinds of snakes. And one time, uh, I was walking down uh, from the dining hall on that trail towards the monastic area. And I saw in my path a small little uh, baby copperhead. Now the baby snakes are much more dangerous because they have no idea how much venom to actually uh, inject, right? So it can be lethal. But I saw the, the baby copperhead, and I was taking a step, and then I just moved back. But there was no fear reaction. It was more like, okay, I better take my, my leg away, because I know it would be fatal otherwise. And the copperhead, it, it, it just went like that, and then, you know, went away. So the idea is not that you need fear. The idea is if you have equanimity, you can just be present and say, okay, here's a snake, but it could be dangerous, so I should probably tread carefully. I think that's a more effective way of looking at it because fear can make you do things that might be uh, not as efficient. Right? That's the way to look at it. Thank you. I'll try and <clears throat> try Thing, how to phrase it to <clears throat> um, <clears throat> when you radiating in the directions the different directions you take each direction at a time and each direction you radiate for about 10 minutes or so is that right no just three or four minutes is fine. three or four minutes oh that's good because <laughs> i couldn't do it that long yeah. <laughs> thank you thank you asharia um my i have two questions First one is <clears throat> in relation to uh, when is it unskillful to just let the mental state be? For example, I'm thinking of the context you're saying, um, you know, just relax and let things be and just observe. But obviously our we have an object of meditation. And say if my initial intention was to cultivate metta, and then maybe some other states, but wholesome states came up and it just observed them, the mind wouldn't go the direction of metta, it might cultivate something else or some other state arise. Um, when, it, when is it skillful to just let it go into that direction rather than come back to the, the initial object? And when is it not? 
So sometimes uh, when you're feeling metta, it can change to compassion, it can change to joy, it can change to equanimity. But the idea is to allow it to change to whatever it will change. If you notice in the field of your awareness surrounding wholesome states like joy or um, sukha, like comfort or tranquility or any of these other states that are present, you're making note, okay, they are there, but the anchor is always metta. So you can think about it like walking uh, down a path in a forest, and here is a butterfly, okay, great. Here is a deer, okay, great. Here is a rabbit, okay, great. I'm still walking on the path. But now the path changes, but I'm still walking along the path. So the idea is not to walk off of the path and then get distracted by the butterfly, no matter how sweet it looks, or get distracted by the deer, no matter how enchanting it might be, whether you keep going down the forest on that path, and the path itself will change. So the idea is to keep that as your anchor, whatever the feeling is. And if itself, if it itself changes, then you allow it to change to whatever it is. How do we recognize when that's the natural change point of its path rather than it being a distraction it's when your mind there's a difference because when your mind sees the joy then it just jumps into the joy it's it's a little more hectic it's a little less smooth whereas the transition from metta to another experience is smoother it's like it fades into it thank you my second question is, um, what are some of the um, tips to generate more curiosity towards the, um, our meditation object? So I think the way to look at it is just to be present with it. Like, okay, I'm looking at it. What are the qualities present? How does the metta feel? Does it feel soft? Does it feel hard? Does it feel... So ask yourself questions like, Okay, what is the quality of the compassion? Is it, and then just be open to whatever the feeling is. Right? That's really how you do it. You can't generate curiosity by, by forcing. You can only be present and observe like a scientist, and be open to whatever is coming up, and then making notes of it. Meaning like, okay, I see that the compassion is softer. I see that the joy is a little bit more vibrant. Okay, I see equanimity is very balanced. That's the way to do it. Thank you. So earlier you said that when you're in a wholesome state, you, your mind um, is spacious. So how, how do you tell um, whether, like, you're feeling meta as opposed to some other wholesome mind states. So meta feels like gladness for yourself. It feels like appreciation for yourself. It feels like appreciation for another. It feels like wanting the best for yourself and wanting the best for the other. That's really what meta is. Simple. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Um, can you can you describe a little bit how to work with intention? Say you want to do um, you're just playing around with your meditation um, on a particular day, and and you're like, I wonder what it would be like to uh, get super deep into equanimity of its own thing. How do you work with that intention to do that? And then maybe you're like, well, what happens if I go to equanimity and then, and then I want to go to quiet mind, right? How do you work with intention while you're in the, in the meditative states? It's actually, you know, it's as probably as simple as saying in your mind, my mind will be in this space of equanimity and go no further. Mm. That's just setting that parameter. Mm -hmm. And it might happen and might not happen, but you just keep trying, keep doing it until the mind understands those parameters and then stays within those boundaries and can you can you uh, sometimes see that actually that process actually working in the mind if it's 
if it's slow enough, if you're if you're really slow enough, you can see it kind of trying to figure out what it is. Yes. You're, okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Um, I have a question. I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it. Um, it seems like uh, our conscious mind is untrained and uh, leads us into all kinds of uh, problems. But there's this deeper wisdom that we can uh, connect with uh, by training. Uh, on the other hand, though, it also seems like our conscious mind uh, is used to uh, set, the, set the, the intention, set the direction, set the parameters in order to train that wiser mind to obey us and to kind of do what we ask it to do. Right. So that's, it's, it feels like a bit of a contradiction, and I'm curious how that works. Yeah, I think uh, one way of looking at it is from uh, a neuroscientific perspective, where we have something known as the default mode network, and we have something known as the task-positive network. And the default mode network is that mind that just daydreams and thinks about this or that, thinks about in terms of self relation to what I did in the past, what I'm doing now, what I'm doing in the future. And so that is the that is the uh, nature of the mind of pretty much 99% of the world. But you think about when you become focused and you start to direct your mind towards a project or towards a goal or towards something, the achievement of something. That's task positive. There's a task at hand which your mind is now geared towards. When that happens, in reality the mind becomes very present to whatever is happening in the moment. But the key is not to do it in such an ex to do it to such an extent that you tire yourself out, and that can happen, where people get meditation fatigue, where they try to become very meditative and they push and push and push, and they lose steam. So with this practice, what we're doing is we're making the mind malleable, like gold. That's how the Buddha would talk about uh, this nature of mind. He said that the mind is luminous. It is what is known as the Pabhasara Chitta, the luminous mind. But due to adventitious defilements, it gets covered up. So what we're doing is not trying to bring the mind into control. We are uncovering all of the defilements so the mind can do what it naturally does, is to be luminous in the moment, to be present and aware of whatever is going on. And instead of becoming a, a projector of ideas and a projector of this and that, it is a receiver of insight and intuition. That is the goal. Thank you. I have a follow-up question relating to an early question and your comment about fear and how to drop the worry and respond more wisely. Uh, what would you say to those who are, let's call them, very spontaneous and have high-risk appetite that they don't worry? You know, so their hindrance is not worry. Perhaps maybe more ignorance, um, and so they, you know, they, um, yeah, they actually try to go out and maybe have the attitude of um, being spontaneous and, you know, think that they're in the, you know, being in the present because they're not worrying. However, um, because they might not be as informed mm -hmm. in those situations. And what's your advice towards people yeah. like that? Mm -hmm. So there is something about spontaneity that we'll talk about later because a mind that is free of craving is spontaneous. And when we say spontaneous, it doesn't mean that it will just do what, whatever it wants in that moment. It means that it is attuned to what is required in that moment. That's how it's spontaneous. It doesn't. It has no prior thought to what is required. Right. It's allowing intuition to flow, and then whatever is required in that moment, in alignment with the eightfold path. But what you're talking about here, or what you're referring to here, is a mind that is actually aversive. It might be not so risk averse, but it is actually avoiding something. So it's actually stemming from some need to push away something and being in the moment in that in that time. 
So for such a mind, I would say, look back into what exactly are you doing in this moment? Why do you feel like you need to be doing this rather than allowing the moment to unfold? Right? So that spontaneity has this, this tense energy. Whereas being open to the moment is relaxed and being flowing with whatever needs to be done. One is trying to take control of the moment and the other is just allowing the moment to unfold as it would. So you have to recognize that. Thank you. I don't know this is a question to say for later, but could you talk at all about Kriya Yoga and how that could be relevant to so TWIM? Kriya Yoga, when you talk about Kriya Yoga, this is something that um, it depends on the school of Kriya Yoga and so on. But there are certain things that you can do for Kriya Yoga which are not required for the general, um, you know, the general um, uh, group of participants. I will only show you certain techniques if they are required based on your interviews. Dealing with certain issues that you might have in the energy system and so on. So that can be done on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Okay. What, what is Kriya Yoga though? Could you just briefly... Kriya Yoga is essentially uh, a process of dealing with certain kinds of karmic debris that gets built up in how we take things personally, right? And you use certain kinds of techniques that, you know, that seem esoteric because they're dealing with chakras and all of these things, but what you're dealing with is actually your subconscious mind that's being projected out from your limbic system. Right? And so certain techniques clear that away by reconditioning our behavioral patterns from what we would be doing that causes us more suffering to dealing with situations in a more wise and compassionate manner. That's the essence of Kriya Yoga. But the techniques involved are all related with um, certain kinds of postures or certain kinds of attention being given to certain centers and dealing with them to release and relax and to let go of any emotional, mental, or karmic debris that's being built up in the mind. Thank you. Uh, so, quick question about the meditation technique. So, uh, sometimes as it's as I'm advancing through, um, let me see. At some point after the radiation in all degrees, in, a, in all directions, um, it becomes kind of hard to maintain the smile. Right, like, that's fine. You don't okay. need to at that point. Okay. Because yeah. what you're doing is you're going at a purely mental level at that point, and trying to maintain the smile or bring up the smile brings you back to the physical, and it feels a little jolting, so don't worry about that. Okay. Just relax and return. Okay. Thank you. sure if I should save this question for later. Um, when we are in the um, quiet mind state where thoughts are bubbling up, I noticed a lot of it are past action. It could even be movie scene, <laughs> um, things like that. Um, in other words, this state is where Purification of mind is really, really happening. Could I say that? It's happening at every point, every time you're meditating. What's, what's going on here is you're just dealing with your subconscious mind. Um, would it be advisable to say that that's the most important state to stay longer? So that... No. No. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, going back to the Kriya Yoga, I just want to ask a quick question about the karmic debris. 
So can a person hold karmic debris basically only in the body, you know, the physical thing, like could they have issues in their throat or their hips or whatever, right? Is that is that the kind of thing that uh, yeah, Kriya so Yoga the, can so address? the body thing is just a manifestation of something much deeper. Mm. So even when you have bodily pain or tightness or knots in the body, then I'll give you forgiveness, for example. Mm -hmm. Whether you do forgiveness, whether you do twin, whether you do kriya, all of these are dealing with that on a deeper level, mm. which is at an emotional or mm -hmm. psychological or subconscious level. Okay. All right. So I'm not understanding karmic debris quite the way you're using it. So karmic you're debris is it. basically just, I mean, I'm using the word karmic debris because it sounds fancy. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just it's just uh, unresolved things. Okay. In your mind. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> just uh, one one last question for me. Uh, do the suttas say anything about dreams and dreaming? Uh, not to my understanding. I always have a lot of crazy dreams. Yeah, on I retreat. have on retreat, by the way. You will have a lot of crazy dreams. And that's probably because of the mind uh, making adjustments to sleep, right? So maybe your REM sleep is uh, is more, and that, that could be it. And it might be making adjustments. It's uh, making micro-adjustments to the schedule and so on. And that, that happens a lot. Uh, the other thing is, if your mind becomes very aware and very clear, you're just more tuned to whatever dreams you're dreaming, you know, and sometimes it becomes lucid also. Mm. But not not really a big deal. Yeah, there's like no way to continue the meditation practice in the dreams. Right. Although you could, you could if you were lucid, you could radiate metta, or you could uh, do something like that. Mm. Yeah. Interesting.